podcast ain't played nobody. Exclusive. I'm in a Hampton Inn. Not exclusive. Parts unknown. That's the that that is the exclusive here. Uh, I can't tell you guys. It's not much of an exclusive, is it? I'm just gonna keep saying that word. Um, I feel like it was. It's a good tease for the show, Bill. I just locked up an embed. Haven't done one this year since the uh, West Virginia fiasco that shall not be named last season. I swore them off. I got talked back into the game, much like a later one of the later Die Hard sequels. I'm I'm through with this shit, and and they keep dragging me back in because someone has like strapped a nuclear bomb to a crop duster or something like that. So, yes. Embedding with a team is just like being an action movie star. No, I can't tell you where yet because uh, I like actually can't. But I am coming to you from parts unknown. I've also subscribed to a ridiculous amount of work obligations. Bill, we're getting close to the like. I can see December. I know what December looks like now. Um, well, yeah, it feels good. Um, I know that's heresy. I don't want to be the curmudgeonly sports writer. We have. An insane amount of football still left to the point where I'm starting to see people's like, no, this is really going to happen playoff projections. It's not. You don't know. We still have plenty of football left. We saw last, we saw last week how, how tenuous any yes. sort of confidence yes. really is. So just because I can see the light at the end of a tunnel on a personal standpoint doesn't mean that you, football consumer, football, football enthusiast, football... Um, I'm I'm running out of words because it's early and we record this show before I get I get witty and in a chart. Here's the problem with this show, and we have a lot to do today, so I'm gonna make this quick. All right, here's my issue with you. Bill gets up at like four, four thirty, yes. legit. Four, no, this four. is not a joke. No, like four o five. Okay, four o five. You get up at four o five every day. Bill uses this time wisely because he crunches a lot of like numbers and data, and you also you write in the morning, correct? Right. I basically, I wake up, I hammer out the links post for Rock M, uh, then I hammer out the daily tailgate piece um, between like five and anywhere between about seven and nine. But you're also, and then you're also working on content for like Football Study Hall and for SB Nation and yeah? Right. Well, yeah, and Rock M, yeah. Okay. I am a drunk, uh, not so much a drunk anymore, but I'm still just like, you know, you are what you always want. A part of you at 23 carries with you forever. I do not get working creatively until about 6 p.m. every day, which is a disaster because I'm a father and a husband now, but it's just, that's it. That's that's when the magic happens. That's when I'm ready to shoot, Jack. And I can't do anything about it. So we we record this show on your schedule because Bill is the one who handles all the back end stuff. Big shock there, right? And I'm just, you know, the, the creative pistons, they're slow. The engine is cool at the moment. So I don't, I, I can't even be that creative. I'm going to jump right into it because I have one little snit with you. All right, you ready? Um, ready. We, we keep forgetting to tell people who the, the, the show is, and the metrics keep saying we have new listeners, so welcome. Uh, this is Podcast Ain't Played Nobody. It's a college football marriage of numbers and words. Um, my co-host is Bill Connolly, the inventor of the S&P Plus analytics system proprietor of SB Nation's Football Study Hall, and author of the forthcoming book, The 50 Greatest Football Teams, oh, College Football Teams of All Time. No, you hush for a second. My name is Stephen Godfrey, and I got the job. I got the job on Twitter this week to be the voice of your audiobook until some ham and egger suggested Wright Thompson, and then you fired me on the spot. Well, I thought it was Jason Kirk impersonating Wright Thompson. And how am I supposed to, how am I supposed to say no to that? Well, you're, among, among other things, he edits all my stuff. Well, let me tell so, you something about this marriage. You're you're walking home. 
It's 50 best, by the way. The thought of an audio book does kind of crack me up because we are talking about a book that ended up 117,000 words. Um, I can make it work. I mean, if you take a month off, which, I mean, in that case, maybe I should do it. But um, No, 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 no. You, you stay productive and I stay procrastinating and also perpetually behind deadline. That's how this little dalliance works, okay? <laughs> uh, speaking of which, I want to transition right into the, the first subject. Speaking of things that are crippling me on a deadline, I've been working on a, uh, let's say, unique angle uh, for a feature on Big 12 realignment, which is now, realignment, no, I'm sorry, expansion. It's dead now, it's over. Um, it's also old news because I was traveling this week. We had to push back to recording this podcast by 24 hours. We are not going to recap anything. We are not going to give you the news that you already know. But here's what I can tell you moving forward. The Big 12 is dumber than they ever have been. And that's a benchmark that's hard to clear. I don't know when you're, if, you, if you're establishing a benchmark as an insult, I don't know if you actually then go with the, with the declining height. It's like tripping over the pole, and then you bury it further, and you continue to trip over it. <laughs> this was, hands down, the dumbest three months or whatever it was that I've ever seen a major conference go through. This no, was self-inflicted. Exactly you know, right. This was self-inflicted. I stood there in Dallas... And I kind of made a conspiracy theory on Twitter, and I didn't mean to, that we were beating them in the face with their own hands, the way that you would do to a little brother, about Baylor, and about how badly they had bungled that situation, in which we were basically a gaggle of us reporters had Bob Bowles be on the ropes saying, well, we're not entirely sure what we know about Baylor. We don't know. Because impeachment proceedings on Baylor, that's what we in the media were talking about. Is this an absolute systemic corruption? So we're beating them in the face. Then down the hall, Baylor comes and holds a separate press conference. They introduce Mac Rhodes. That goes over like like a, just a bouquet of farts in church. <laughs> and then the next day, they drop a press release after a teleconference that they want to talk about expansion. And like a bunch of meerkats, our dumbasses just burp, 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 expansion. <laughs> and we're the worst ones on the internet too, Bill. We're worse than like the, the stodgy old columnists because we can go like a hundred different ways on internet content with real. Oh yeah. And I can't say anything, Bill, because the next day, the next day I rented a car and drove to Houston. The next day, instead of going home. So for three, I, month, for three months, we chased, this, we chased this stupid rabbit, and it ran away from us. I, the, the most maddening part about this specific episode um, was that they had the answer right, like a month beforehand. They decided, you know, there's not a, really a hope for a Big 12 network uh, for whatever reason. I mean, part of it is, you know, uh, the biggest program has its own network already and won't give it up and shouldn't give it up, has no reason to give it up. Uh, and so they actually reached the right conclusion. They'd been flirt. Obviously, I mean, our our story stream of Big 12 expansion stuff goes back. Um, I think we're at like 450 updates now or something like that, going back to like 2010 when when we when story streams became an option. I was about to say, I think it goes back to when in, before any of us had jobs with, with this company. <laughs> yeah, that's not a joke. Oh, no, I, not at all. And so... But they reached the point where, you know, they, they flirted with it forever. They got their stupid title game, uh, even though they don't deserve one because they only have 10 teams and they have a perfect round robin. They started talking about b breaking in the stupid division. So not only are you going to have a perfect round robin uh, where everybody's already played everybody, which is the one true champion method of um, 
of determining a champion. And not only are they going to create a title game on top of that anyway, but they're going to create a scenario where like the number one team in the conference has to play like number four because they are in the other artificially created division. Uh, They made stupid choices, but they were choices. They had the future lined out. They weren't going to expand. They were going to work with 10, which makes perfect sense because if you get your stupid title game, um, even though you don't, you, you know, at best the odds of improving your, or the, the chances that you improve your odds of making the playoff are tiny, even if I still don't completely believe those odds. You get it. You're going to be able to split that revenue 10 ways. It makes perfect sense to not go any further than that, especially if Texas isn't really interested in giving up the Longhorn Network. And again, it shouldn't because it has its deal in place for quite a while longer and they don't have to share with anybody. So it'd be stupid to get rid of it. So they have all that. And that's June. In July... They say, actually, let's think about expansion again for the 25th time, just in case that can suddenly like intimidate ESPN into giving them more money, which I guess it almost kind of did, but they could have done that behind the scenes and not gotten like 20 schools hopes up of of getting onto this power conference spaceship before the spaceship takes off. Um, they decided instead of doing this privately, instead of working the machinery, working whatever little contract loophole they had, they decided to announce there was a contract loophole and announce that they were looking into this and that publicly, uh, only to then two months later or three months later realize, actually, these are the same candidates we had. None of them make any sense, and we can split money ten ways if we don't expand, so we're not expanding. Bill, when Missouri joined the SEC, how long was the penalty before they became a full revenue-sharing member? Uh, zero. Okay. Depending on what the structure is, when you join a conference, sometimes it takes it takes a period of time to graduate into becoming a full revenue member. I believe right. that's the case at Rutgers in Maryland. Yeah. I think they're and I think maybe still out. Nebraska, or at least the, Nebraska's might have just ended. I'm not sure. Um, every I, I didn't. I, I think maybe I just forgot because I've been traveling so much. I wrote a quick notebook thing Tuesday or Wednesday. I don't remember after Tuesday. the announcement. One of the things that I, I think I just plum forgot, or maybe it was because I only had a single off-record source, the all of the candidates were ready to take nothing for like three years. Three years. So what I'm saying by that is that uh, it doesn't matter. Whatever names I throw out it means nothing at this point. But like Cincinnati, South Florida, Houston, Central Florida, BYU, UConn, whatever. They were going to take a pittance for three or four years just to be in the league because the league provides them eventual security, eventual right. riches, they would be making $20, $30 million, hypothetically, under a revised television deal, especially once the Big 12 kicked in pro rata. This, okay, here's the thing on this. And this is the only way we can serve our constituency, constituency on this show. We have too much to discuss. This topic reaches into so many different areas. If you have a specific question moving forward, some of you may just be tired of this and you just want to talk about this weekend and Texas A&M and Alabama and Ohio State and Penn State. We're going to do that in this show. From here on running, if you have a question, ask us. If you have a, a what's going on behind the closed doors thing, ask me. That's fine. I, I, I'm still working on things. I actually have a feature that uh, maybe next week uh, will be coming out on one individual that was involved in this, a highly prominent individual, and, ha- and what, what this was like from his vantage point, um, which is one of the reasons I was traveling this week. I don't, know, I, I don't even know how to boil it down for, for a segment of a podcast. Is there, I tell you what, let me just throw it to you, because I've been neck deep in this for days, really weeks. What, what was the, it, it, other than the stupidity, because you are a fan of a school that 
lived in the that's great. Really the height of the stupid. I mean, I, I when you think about it, I can tell you the, uh, what you probably already know, Bill, which is that the fault line between old Southwest individual powers and the collective paranoia of the old Big Eight it never died. Mm-hmm. It never died. There's an oral history on SI that I keep plugging, which I shouldn't because it's not our website. But you can go read the oral history of the Big of the Big Twelve formation. It's uh, it's from earlier this summer on on SI's website. Good luck navigating that website. Um, I think no, I, I don't think I know based on conversations I've had with people who are in the room during the audition process and people who had contacted multiple presidents. The factions, and I wrote about this. There was the faction of the old Big Eight who were hyper-paranoid about bringing in anyone else that might undermine their individual efforts. And by the way, this is not talking about Kansas basketball. That's that's an outlier. We are just talking about football. Football drives the machine. Then there was Texas and Oklahoma as sort of independent, warring, rich nations. And then there was the league itself, which exists not as the old Mike Slot of SEC, which can control everything and keep everyone in line and, like, the most effective United Nations you've ever seen. The Big 12 that was created with Bob Bowlesby after Dan Beebe was really just a facade. It was a storefront to cater to the whims of the superpowers in the conference. And none of these four factions could seem to align because I can tell you 100% on the record, there was no real vote. This whole schools were not uh, schools didn't achieve enough votes, you know. Oh well, South Florida only got X or Cincinnati. That never even happened. That's all a facade. There was never a vote. Um, again, I, I I can go in any direction with this. It's too big a subject for me personally. Um, so if you have questions, hit us up. Is there anything you want to say on it, Bill? It's flabbergasting. So, I can say that. So, so this very morning, um, Thursday morning. Uh, I, I tweeted it earlier. I'll put it. I'll, I'll probably tweet it a couple more times because it's awesome. So uh, Gabe Diarman at Power Mizzou, the Missouri Rivals site. Um, talk to Mike Alden. Talk to Arbo and Lofton. Talk to uh, Brady Deaton. Basically, put together a nice oral history of Missouri's move uh, specifically um, from you know '09 when the Big Ten announced it was expanding through basically till the present when everybody laughs at how bad the Big Twelve is now. Um, Really, really well done, and I, I and it's uh, a pretty incredibly revealing piece. Like through the years, you haven't really gotten much out of Brady Deaton beyond you know he's a, he's a for, he's Missouri's former chancellor, uh, the guy before Lofton came in and <clears throat> screwed up about thirty eight things, um, and you know Deaton we, we used to call him Chancellor Robot, which is funny now considering you know what not, what not only you call me but also. Uh, sorry. My daddy is a real life robot. She's right. So, so She's right. So anyway, so Chancellor Robot uh, never really showed emotion or preference or anything else at the time. He just basically said Missouri is uh, dedicated to making it work with the Big Twelve until the moment they decided, you know what, this doesn't work, and they uh, called up, you know, his friend Bernie Machin at, at at Florida, and and Mike Slavin got the ball rolling. Um, but. I, you know, Gabe's a good interviewer. He's been doing this a long time and he got these guys to kind of open up. Maybe enough time has passed so that they were a little less guarded about it. Plus they're all retired. Mike Alden's not athletic director anymore. Deaton's not there. Um, and they still hate the lost Dodds with the passion of a thousand sons. <laughs> it is incredible. It is hilarious. Some of the quotes, and I know this will annoy Texas fans and they have a right to be because you know, this is Missouri side of it. Texas has their side of it. And among other things, it does kind of confirm that uh, back in like 0708 when the big 10 network was 
getting rolling, they kind of explored the thought of a Big 12 network, and the studies didn't really suggest it would work. Um, nobody knew if it, the Big 10 network would work at the time. Uh, and the, the interest didn't really seem to be there. That's always one of the Texas pushback points was we created the Longhorn network because nobody wanted to do a Big 12 network. Not completely true. But no. it's at least it's it's at least partially true that nobody really pursued the Big Twelve network as much as they should have in hindsight. It may have not existed in the table in which ESPN pitched LHN to Texas, but to say that it didn't have potential is disingenuous. Right. So anyway, so there's this one quote, and it, you know they all are very still very annoyed with the thought of like blaming Missouri for any of the things that went on when every school was angling. Uh, but Mike Alden, who had a lot of strength as athletic director, sarcasm is not one of them. He said, OK, so this is this is before Nebraska had announced they were going to leave. We were at one of those meetings and Dan Beebe was running it. There was all this tension in the room. And Tom Osborne was just so he was always so class. I just loved being in meetings with him. He was very thoughtful. When all of this was going on, there was one athletic director in particular. I can't remember what school it was, but it's in Austin. Anyhow, I heard the guy <laughs> in the chair. He just started flipping out. Flipping out is probably too strong a word, but he got pretty agitated, this person, and started dropping expletives about this and firing them at us at Mizzou because Mizzou was rumored to maybe maybe the Big Ten is looking. And I was trying to be very professional. Uh, and you know who stood up for me? Tom Osborne. Um, thought that was pretty good, but it Tom does kind of walk through time. Tom Osborne hated Texas as much as Missouri did. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and he probably hated them first. Um, because when the, at the formation of the big 12, obviously big, uh, Nebraska was a much bigger because of football, Nebraska was a much bigger name and had much more seemingly much more leverage at the table that was taken away from them by, uh, through negotiation. But, um, anyway, it's, it's a, it is a one-sided look. It is a Missouri look. And if you keep that, I, I, I can find a lot of, well, obviously I enjoy it because I am Missouri, but. You can find a lot of use from these pieces in general if you just kind of keep that lens, if you keep that that prism in mind. This is from a Missouri point of view, uh, but it's really, really interesting uh, about the, the order of things that happen. Like, you know, Chip Brown on June 3rd, 2010, announces the whole Pac-16 idea. But uh, a couple quotes from Lofton suggested that was really in place since about February, and Texas was kind of already holding it above people's heads at that point. Um, so really revealing, interesting read, and... and um, uh, good job by Gay putting it all together. So I, I, I highly encourage everybody to check that out. Uh, moving, moving in the opposite direction of time. I, if you hear someone predict what's going to happen in 2025, they're full of shit. It's yeah. just not going to happen. Um, yeah, that was kind of the funny part, by the way, of, of on Monday, I kind of wrote about, or Tuesday, set up kind of a numerical approach to, you know, this many days and yada, yada, yada. Uh, and I found myself exploring like, okay, well, let's project, let's look ahead nine years. What might happen? And it was, I tried to put a giant disclaimer there of, we have no idea. But thinking of it, thinking of it in 2016 terms, I just tried to look at like who might be available to which conferences and whatnot. And yeah. It's a total mess only because... The landscape will look pretty similar. Obviously, these things have gone through seismic changes in the last decade, but on the whole, these things also move very slow because of contracts. What's going to be incredibly volatile between now and 2025 is the service providers. So that's the fuel in the engine and the heap of coal that keeps this thing going down the tracks, and that's changing. That's I don't I don't want to say it's dying. I talked to Mike Oresco for a piece that's uh, it'll go up in my column next week about. Hey, how does the AAC rebound? Because now they've kept their they've kept their most you know promising chips in the pile, being like Cincinnati, Houston, and the Floridas, mm-hmm. um, and Tulane. I don't want to be rude. 
Um, but there's no idea right now of how we're going to be not just receiving like college football content, but how we're going to be paying for it. We've yeah. devoted a lot of time to this on the program. It's shifting as we speak. Like I was on the phone with Larry Scott when he was telling me that, you know, hey, Pac-12 is available on Sling now, and we're going to put out a deal for PlayStation View. And by the way, there was an announcement yesterday. CBS, the network that I denigrate whenever I get a chance because of how <laughs> Luddite they are with their, with their streaming capabilities or the lack thereof, well, there's probably an explanation for that now because they're in talks with Google for an o- OTT service. So this thing never really stops moving. Um, does that mean that you could be getting the CBS, SEC CBS games and, and, and what they have of the AAC and the Mountain West for free on your phone with an ad support system? Is it something that you're going to pay three ninety nine for? We don't know yet. All of this is going to change, and it's going to dramatically impact how these deals are done moving forward. And so to say that the Big 12 is dead is – I don't see how anyone thinks that they're that prescient right now. I really don't. But it's, it doesn't look good. They're the first Power right. 5 conference with the, with the earliest grant of rights expiration. Right. That's why that's, – that's, by the way, when we say 2025 – that's, that's because why. that's when the grant of rights expires in the Big 12. Grant of rights real fast, if you're, if, just in case you don't know and don't feel stupid because this stuff is so down in the weeds that there's no real reason <laughs> to know it as a football fan. Grant of rights is the concept in which you sign over the money that you would make off of any television deal to your current conference for X amount of time. So that's why Florida State can't join the Big 12 because they've signed a grant of rights with the ACC that extends for years and years and years. So they could go to the Big 12 but the money they make off television would have to go back to the ACC. So that's why that doesn't happen. Um, yeah, so we were thinking of in, in 2016 terms, the Big 12 is dead in 2025. And basically the Big 12 and technology have nine years to, tr- to prove that wrong. Yeah, either that or they are going to die. But I think if the Big 12 dies, they won't be the only one. I think some seismic changes are going to occur. Now, ESPN owes these conferences, and in Texas's case, just Texas, a sizable amount of money for a long time. How ESPN does that and how, how much ESPN can revenue. Here's the, the short of this, and then we'll move on to, to some super on-topic, super on-brand topic for this podcast. ESPN paid a lot of money to a lot of sports for for rights, for broadcast rights, for a long time. And they were like crazy numbers that we all looked at and we were shocked. But ESPN made a crazy amount of money for decades because when you got cable, you had no choice. You paid a fee, and ESPN could command a percentage of that fee, sometimes $2 or $3, depending on who your cable provider was, that went straight into their pocket and there was nothing anyone could do about it. There is a theory out there that if everything goes a la carte in the world, nothing will ever generate that kind of automatic dominant revenue for obvious reasons. Because when your grandma got cable, she didn't care about ESPN, maybe, unless you got a cool grandma. That's cool. Um, I know the no, my grandmother wouldn't care about ESPN. But anyway, if she bought cable, ESPN still got their money. Even if ESPN goes to a Netflix service or Fox goes to a Netflix service and it's it's a streaming on-demand a la carte thing, they're going to have to charge a lot more for it. They're going to have to charge probably 8 or 9 or 10 or 12 bucks because they're not going to automatically get $3 from virtually every American citizen you know, from coast to coast who may or may not care about sports. We don't know yet. We don't really know what's going to happen. 
So to predict the demise is completely premature. Also, to predict that, you know, and I'll leave it at this, I swear to God. This is, at least gets me to the Big Ten to a transition point to the next topic. Rutgers and Maryland looked like a coup at the time because the Big Ten Network was the first out of the gate, had arguably the strongest deal, and that they were a revenue-sharing co-partnership between an immensely strong brand in Fox and an immensely strong conference in the Big Ten. Everything made sense on that. We laughed and got our jokes in about Rutgers and Maryland from a quality standpoint in football specifically, right? And I guess they're sucking. Well, I mean, like, Maryland basketball was, like, good when I was in college. Rutgers is bad at most things at the moment, yeah. Yeah. And you could just leave it at that. Rutgers is bad at most things. Uh, But we all laughed. But at the same time, they got the New York, New Jersey television area, and they got the Washington, Baltimore metro area, and they got it because their fans already lived there of other schools and because they could stage events in the area and because they could win those DMAs. Chances are this. I just talked to someone in television yesterday who doesn't even deal in sports. The DMA is going away. It won't exist the way you think it will because rabbit ears and local television, all of that is going to change. So what I'm saying is as much as the Big 12 may be dead, it may, be look, re- it may look really stupid to have Maryland and Rutgers in the Big 10 in 2025. Really stupid. We don't know yet. Let's get the hell out of television revenue, okay? And, and before we go to the – I'm going to wreck your transition here because I did, want, I did want your opinion on one thing. Okay. Uh, we talked to Mike Oresco at AAC in uh, July, August, whenever that was, mm-hmm. um, after, you know, Lobster. And, um, you know, at the time – you know, we, we've talked about this on this program. Like, what's the best – what's the, the best move the AAC itself can make? Um, I – it, you know, we talk about super conferences and, and all that. And he basically, you know, very definitively said, well, actually, no, we're stronger than all the other conferences in, you know, we, we think of ourselves as the sixth power conference. So why would we, why would we join up with the mountain West and anybody else? We feel we're in a good place. And he's, and he's technically right. Um, you know, you look at the average S and P plus ratings that I post most weeks anyway, like it's the top five. Uh, there's a golf and then there's number six AAC and then there's another golf and then there's everybody else. Um, you know, they're not close to, they're basically a little closer to the mountain West than they are the big 12, but not that, not that far. Um, if you, if you're Mike Oresco, first of all, God bless you. You live in Providence and you get a lot of good meals. Um, what, what are you thinking right now in terms of the, 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 the road forward for, uh, your conference. Are you pretty happy with just having, like apparently uh, permanently having Houston and all these other programs and, and having at least two or three, probably top 40 teams at least every year? Or are you trying to kind of still solidify yourself and trying to figure out, instead of just saying we consider ourselves the sixth power conference, are you trying to figure out a way to consolidate and, and continue moving forward and, 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 mo- and trying to move your quality upward? I'll have that answer for you next week. Man, I just had this long spiel, and, and you hit the pause well, button. You, you literally just teased right into what I'm writing for next week. But, yes, I did talk to Oresco. I am working on something about basically what happens now for those who have been shut out and what can the AAC do moving forward because he wants to throw in this whole Power 6 thing, and that's cute, but you make, like, $2 million a year for each school in television revenue. And right. as bad as the Big 12 is right now, they make, depending on the school because of the LHN structure, like $20 million, $25 million. Yeah. 
That's the difference. Right. That's why you're not going to keep Willie Taggart. That's why you're not going to keep Tom Herman. That's the problem. That's the core fundamental. Now, we can argue right. the philosophy and the ethics of that and, and why in the hell that really matters on another day. And we will because that's what this show does. Bill, let me get to Purdue, damn it. <laughs> I'm looking at a digital internet meme um, from what I assume to be a Boiler fan. Name Anish Ramswani. I hope I got that right. And he tweeted at Boiled Sports, and I don't know how this fell into my feed, but it did. Intriguing Purdue list. And it's a picture of someone, like an outline of a man doing a shrug, and uh, uh, superimposed on a Boiler logo. And it says the words, intriguing possibilities. It's just, this for some reason made me laugh. It looks like something John Boyce would do for us. Um, and it has just last names peppered about. You ready? And by the way, this is uh, intriguing possibilities means their head coaching search. Right. Frost, Harson, Meacham, Taggart, Montgomery, Holtz, Shoup, Sanford, Satterfield, Moglia. Um, first off, does everyone know who everyone, all those people are, you think? Scott Frost, Brian Harson, Doug Meacham, Billy Taggart, um, I assume it's Philip Philip Montgomery they're talking about, right? Skip uh, Holtz yeah, sure, at Louisiana yeah. Tech, Joe Mowgli at Coastal Carolina, Bob Shoup, currently the defensive coordinator at Tennessee, Scott Satterfield, I'm assuming, at uh, yeah, Appalachian. Appalachian State, and Mike Sanford, the offensive coordinator at Notre Dame. Um, let me give you a quick possibility rundown on that. You ready, Bill? I'm ready. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Bob Shoup, maybe. Maybe. Skip Holt. It was Bob, it was Bob Shoup and not Bob Stitt. Yeah. I mean, okay. we can critique the fan-made meme if you want, but <laughs> Satterfield, Mowgli, okay, let's break this list up real fast. Um, and by the way, y'all just been begging for some Purdue content, so here you go, you yeah. evil jackals. Eat. I might, um, I might disagree with a couple of these, but go, you go first. I mean, we can take it candidate by candidate if you want to. I'm just telling you right now. Okay, I can tell you as a reporter. Let me put the reporter hat on first. <laughs> Tagger's not going to Purdue. Tagger's going to get no. a better job. What are they, 6-1 yeah. right now? He's going to get a better, so. a better job. Also, a better job than Purdue is staying at South Florida and winning again for another year, okay? This is the South Carolina-Houston conundrum of last year for, for Mr. Herman. Joe Moglia is a maybe. Because he's old. I would say, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna push back on that one because he's sixty-seven. He doesn't have many chances. He wants to go fast, and he wants to get up there as fast as he can. Joe Moglia is a maybe. The problem with Joe Moglia is, if you don't know this, Joe Moglia basically like created and ran and built CD Ameritrade. Yeah. Uh, or TD Ameritrade, which is what right. uh, is a financial institution based in Omaha, Nebraska. He's a guy from Long Island. He's got a good book out there. I read part of it. This guy is going to kick the ass of the financiers at Purdue. This guy is going to come in with a financial mind as to what Purdue needs to be competitive. And I don't know if that I don't know if the the highly rumored to be inept and um um kind of what's the word I'm looking for? Um, let's just go with disorganized because I don't want to be too mean. Purdue is, I mean, they would have to grant him a level of control that I don't feel like they're going to be comfortable with. He's no dummy. I, I talked to him. He's a really sharp man. Mike Sanford is not going to do this. I think Mike Sanford is holding out for a better job at yeah, a better well, that, that, 
the last few weeks might have kind of hurt his prospects in that regard, but yeah. Well, and I, I think to some degree, Sanford is immune to what's going on. Sanford is connected to Brian Harson because they're both Boise guys. Brian Harson is not leaving Boise for this crap. <laughs> they could look. He is first off. He's from Boise. He played quarterback yep. at Boise. His wife is from Boise. His family only knows Idaho. He is not going to West Lafayette to deal with this crap and get fired in three years and then be it bounce around as an OC for the rest of his career. That's not going to happen. Scott Frost has been at no. yeah for a year, and that's not going to happen. Um, Bob Shoup, I, depending on how things shake out, if you told me Boston College was opening, I would say Bob Shoup would be going there from, from Tennessee. Right. If you told me Vanderbilt was opening, which I am now being told because of Derek Mason's win, regardless of whatever the circumstances are and however they may be, however bad they may be on offense from here till time memorial, Mason is safe for a while. So Shoop is staying put. Shoop to me is a candidate at Boston College and Vanderbilt. Yeah. That, um, we're bouncing around here. Holtz? Well, plus Shoop's brother uh, kind of thought he got a raw deal in Purdue. So That's a very good point. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. Uh, Holtz? I, come on. Uh, he, the great Holtz. thing about Louisiana Tech is that it is a mini version of, like, one of the directional Floridas or Houston. And you can recruit pretty well in the, in the state underneath some powers because there's so much talent. And then you just kind of sit and wait for a good spot. This is not that. This is not the good spot. I really, you know, I realize this isn't how your mind works if you're a coach and you want to make a lot of money, but um, Skip Holtz has found his niche. He has yeah. found his weight class, um, and he's good at it. He was good at East Carolina. He was less good at South Florida, and now he's been very good. He's made a series of really nice moves at Louisiana Tech, and he's built a sturdier program there than I really anticipated him doing. I understand that once you prove that, you then jump up in weight class again. But I wish he wouldn't. I, I kind of think he could be good for Louisiana Tech for a long time and be stable there. Uh, and that's kind of what I hope for him. I, I doubt it works that way. I, plus, I doubt that he gets – I think South Florida might still be a little bit too close in the rear view, and so they wouldn't want to. But, you know, if if your first, uh, you know, X number of names turn you down, you, you certainly open their umbrella a little bit. Meacham and Montgomery are interesting because of a couple things. Um, one, they're Texas offensive guys. Meacham obviously is an OC right now. Montgomery is a head coach. They all sort of come off the same inbred tree. I love how people are like, well, no, he's actually a Browse guy. No, he's actually a Leach guy. Hey, guess what? We all came from dirt. It's the same thing. Those guys, uh, what's intriguing to me about that is there's a program in Bloomington that hired an offensive coordinator from Oklahoma to run a wide-open offense and how and look we didn't we we paid Indiana a good amount of respect the last two episodes, but that took a long damn time and that dude was constantly on the hot seat. Okay, right, and he was um, he has more he has Midwest ties. Yeah, I mean he came from um, you know his well he's from North Carolina I guess, but he he like he coached at Northwestern. Um, he had a lot more ties to the Midwest than either Montgomery or Meacham do I think. I would look at the, I would look at a hire of either one of those guys who I respect immensely and think are damn good coaches and are op- I mean because they're operating within their structure within their within their knowledge base. But it, I would look at it the same way that I look at Matt Campbell being hired at Iowa State. Matt Campbell doesn't have a single connection to that area. Doesn't have a single con- and if you're at Iowa State, ostensibly you have to be connected to Texas. The same that's that's why Kansas hires. David Beatty is because you're if you're in the Big 12 and you're not in Texas you're still recruiting Texas um 
I don't know what they are. Are you going to be pulling? If you're Meacham, are you pulling kids out of Plano to go to West Lafayette? I mean, everyone's going to go. Everyone all of a sudden is going to scream Drew Brees, but that's different. Um, I, I don't. I don't know if I'm either one of those guys. If this is the first step I want to take, it's the first step in Meacham's case. Montgomery's got a good thing going. I just. This is a program that is absolutely bad on the front end and bad in the front office. So I don't know if that's – if you had a program that was incredibly sharp and 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 had like – they were like a baby Clemson in terms of how they were going to run their finances and their marketing and they had Boise's kind of pluckiness and ability for exposure, you don't have any of that and you're in the, you're in the ass end of the Big Ten. It's I, – I just – I don't know what so, hire they're going to make. The, they were I right agree. to find Hazel, but I don't know what hire they're going to make. So I agree that, you know, obviously Purdue is starting from behind in a lot of areas in terms of, you know, they, they don't have lights on their stadium yet. They're getting lights put in their stadium now. Um, so I, I get that it's not um, – that, that they're always going to be at a little bit of a disadvantage, but their biggest problem over the last 50 years has been – uh, you know, above all else, kind of just a lack of vision. That's the way I tried to put it in the in the piece I wrote on Monday. Um, you know, so like Jack Molenkoff comes in. He they hire him in '56. He's a, he's an assistant of the previous coach who did reasonably okay. Uh, he does very very well. Series of top ten finishes. Uh, you know, they start the they start '68 number one, and they're looking really good right up until Ohio State announces that it's Ohio State again, and they so therefore they don't get to win the conference or. or threatened for the national title because Ohio State was awesome all of a sudden. So, I mean, that so hiring an assistant, uh, you know, just making kind of the safe conservative hire in that regard worked. Since then, um, they when Monkoff retired, they they replaced him with a Monkoff assistant, uh, Bob DeMoss. He won 13 games in three years. They then replaced him with Northwestern's failing coach. Uh, guy spent, uh, Alex Agassi, 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 I'm not sure, um, spent nine years at Northwestern, won 32 games, and then Purdue hired him. Um, he, he won 18, he won 18 games in like four or five years, I think, and was done. So then they make a semi-creative hire. Um, Jim Young had been Bo Schimbeckler's, Bo Schimbeckler's defensive coordinator for a little bit. So he had that whole, that, that big aura, that big 10 aura, but he had also gone out to Arizona for four years and, and created a, a crazy passing offense that was creative and interesting. He actually had, he won 26 games in three years at, at Purdue. He actually had a run of success in the, what, early eighties, uh, I guess. Yeah, uh, 78, 79, 80, they went 9, 2, and 1, 10, and 2, and 9, and 3. Um, th- that's good. And they, they, it was not completely outside of the box because he did have Michigan ties, but he had gone out and proven himself as a head coach and proven himself able to kind of, you know, experiment a little bit and not just run a quote-unquote Big Ten offense. Um, so then when he resigns, because uh, he went 5 and 6 in his fifth year, they replace him with his uh, with Young's defensive coordinator, who does not do very well. Goes wins twenty one games in five years. Then they basically replace that guy with Les Miles, um, the Les Miles of the mid eighties, uh, Fred Akers, who succeeded a legend at Texas and did okay, did pretty well for a while, and then trailed off miserably uh, and never got any sort of traction whatsoever at Purdue. 
Um, so, you know, you're either promoting assistants or you're hiring coaches who kind of had started to fail at, at other places. And surprise, surprise, it doesn't work. When those guys, when Akers didn't work, they hired Jim Coletta, the guy they almost hired instead of Akers, who was a former Purdue offensive coordinator, I believe. Uh, doesn't work. So then they hired Joe Tiller, the the experimental little we- that weird dude for, who had the weird offense out at Wyoming for a number of years. Uh, he comes in and installs his weird, unique offense that is not like anything else the Big Ten has seen. And they they had their their biggest sustained run of success since Mollenkopf. And then they hired Danny Hope, who fails. And then they hired Daryl Hazel, who fails. Like the the two experimental or semi-experimental hires they've made worked, but they play it conservatively so much of the freaking time. And and so yeah, you think of Les Miles. Uh, yeah, okay, great. Hire Les Miles. He'll he'll sign top thirty or thirty five recruiting classes. He's not going to sign top ten classes. You don't do that at Purdue. And and Les Miles probably wouldn't have, didn't do that at Oklahoma State either. He did that because he was at LSU. You know they'll they'll raise the floor. They'll you know the, you, he'll build a product that is good enough to go seven and five or eight and four, and then he'll retire. Maybe the next guy is actually capable of doing something more, and that's fine. I mean that's I, I can think of worse things in the world than hiring less miles. It, it would not have a very high ceiling, but it would be entertaining because uh, he'd be he'd get to be an underdog a lot, which is fantastic. Uh, and he'd probably get back to seven or eight wins. So if that's enough, that's great. But that's still not very ambitious. And if you look at the hires that have actually worked at Purdue, you know, I, I basically ran through the list of guys who have, are at least on their third or fourth year of coaching who have also produced good or unique offenses. And I can't, you know, Jeff Brom, uh, who could probably hold out for a better job too at this point, maybe. Uh, Willie Fritz, who we talked about before, probably not. It's kind of awkward timing, but you probably need to give him a call. Niamh Lolo would probably say no, but give him a call if you want. Like the, these are just the names on the list. Troy Calhoun, we know, would take the job, and maybe you know his. He has an aggressive defense and a weird little option offense. Maybe that works for something. Uh, Scott Satterfield was also on this list. Blake Anderson at Arkansas State was on this list. Like, there are plenty of directions you can go, but it's going to piss me off so bad. I'm not a Purdue fan, and it'll piss me off so bad if the new athletic director comes in saying, okay, here's my chance to make an impact hire. Hey, who does Ohio State have on its assistant coaching staff? That'll piss me off so bad. Which is ex- so Ed Warner comes out last night right. with, a, with a quick press scrum that basically is, like, trying to trying to step on it because that was the number one name I saw for days. Yeah. I, I, Didn't that's you just, just got... get done with Trestle Ball? You just got done with Trestle Ball. And the whole premise of hiring a, a, an assistant at a, from a school in your conference that is more successful than yours and will always recruit better than yours, how, how, how is that a good idea? Daryl Hazel was, I think I called him like basically buying the mannequin uh, when I hired him because he had this perfect Big Ten resume, but he was still going to Purdue where he wasn't going to recruit well and wasn't going to be able to play trestle ball because he was going to be doing it with top 60 recruiting classes. And... <sighs> Okay. I'm sorry, Purdue fans. I really am. I this I, I I think a lot of them are in the same boat that I'm I'm kinda in right now. Like you would rather kind of take a weird chance at something unique and different and fail than go the safe conservative route that will fail. Let's put the let's put the AD situation in a vacuum for a second and just look at this relative to the Big Ten. So let's say that you have some sort of stability at the A D in the AD's office and fundraising. And so the money the money's there to, I mean you don't even have to be that aggressive of, of a fundraiser. You're in the Big Ten. You're supposed to be showered with money, <laughs> and you're never going to be expected to compete with the, with the Tiffany of the of the league. So don't worry about 
let's just, I tell you what, for the time being, let's not worry about the Big Ten relative to Ohio State, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Penn State, Nebraska. Um, Michigan State, I, assuming this year's an aberration or a fold in time. Let's just look at the rest of the landscape. Let's figure out how to be dynamic in recruiting against those schools. Let's figure out someone who can, who can I mean, an early signing period would probably help this school. Uh, changing around basically the entire schedule of visits would help this school. Someone who can recruit Texas, Florida, California, and the JUCOs is going to help this school. Um, and then someone who does something fundamentally different as a structure is going to help this school. I, I like Willie Fritz. I didn't think about him until you brought him up. I don't know if he leaves Tulane after one year. Um, he's old enough that he really, I mean, if he's really interested in having a major conference shot, maybe he would listen. He has connections, not really in the proper in the in this context right. of the Midwest, but he's kind of a he's a Kansas guy who spent a lot of time in Texas, so he will he would be able to bring athletes up there. And Missouri, he, he was at D two Missouri school too. Yes, that's right. So so that's a you know we can get into the tribalism of the Midwest later, but that's a different kind of culture. Um, it's not impossible for him to translate and bring some of those kids over. Um, it's a more inspired hire, mainly because of the system he runs, which, by the way, not a triple option. Not a triple option. <laughs> Had a coach yesterday laugh when I mentioned him in the, in the triple option tree, and not a, not a triple option. Um, so it's the, if you didn't read anything I wrote when he was at Georgia Southern, if you haven't watched a two-lane game this year, think Auburn, Cam Newton, like that's their bread and right. butter. Right, it's a bridge and, between and the triple wanted to pass spread. Yeah, ever since he left Sam Hank Houston, he's just not had the opportunity with recruit in terms of the, the talent he had because he's moved around so much. He hasn't been able to go out there, recruit, and groom a, a, a passing structure that he likes. So he's relied more on the physicality of the run. And, the, and I mean, they don't even run. Their offensive line looks nothing. They don't, they don't cut block. They don't, they don't die. They don't do any of that kind of stuff. They run a zone. So um, that would all be very interesting to me in that you suddenly – Buy some time. You get a transition offense in there. That's something that's easy to sell to fans. And then eventually you become a headache. And I think if you're Purdue, you have to become a headache. Yeah. You, you have to – everyone wants to talk about, like, uh, how Texas Tech changed things. But Texas Tech adapted to a market that was emerging all around them. They didn't really create it. They were just the first to tap into it. And now you look at what the that league has become – Purdue could do. Purdue could create a headache, and they wouldn't have to necessarily become an A back, B back traditional triple option team. So, I don't know. I mean, Fritz feels like the smartest move at this moment, but it's definitely a job hunt that I'm going to watch with a lot of interest because it it takes away the parameters of a normal job hunt that we follow. You know, yeah. this this isn't a superstar bidding war. This isn't LSU deciding between. Tom Herman and Jimbo Fisher, you know, dropping $20 million a year on Nick Saban. Like it's, it takes away the dumb side of that. And from a football and resources perspective, this is a key that has to fit a lock and it's a pretty unique lock. I, um, I was just thinking, it just kind of hit me. I'm talking about, you know, experimental and all of this, basically the, the most uh, impactful hire in the big 10 over the last 30 years in terms of the way it completely changed a program for 30 years uh, was Barry Alvarez at Wisconsin, who was probably who probably precisely fit into that boring category of successful school defensive coordinator at you know Notre Dame, um, and so as you were talking, I was trying to think of, like number one is there a guy who is that like at those big schools who is a definitive 
awesome coordinator, first of all. And I don't like Michigan right now. I mean, Don Brown's old. Don Brown's really old. Um, and the and the offensive coordinator, I don't think quite has the um, has had the level of success that that Alvarez had had at Notre Dame. Ohio State has Warner, has Luke Fickle, and whatnot. No, they're, no, they're no. Not, they're not, not as well regarded as as Alvarez was. And then Notre Dame right now is kind of a hot mess. So even if Stanford is will, really well regarded, he's not as experienced as Alvarez. So I don't think that that qualifies. But that was kind of a perfect hire that fit into every single boring category that I just mocked. So who, who knows? I, this whole thing is such a crapshoot. I just, if I'm Purdue, I'm looking at guys who bring something different to the table. And I think, I do think Fritz qualifies in that regard. You hire Stanford. I think he's a, he's a great guy. He's a dynamic guy. I just don't know if he can, based off of what he's run in Notre Dame and Boise, I don't know if that's, you know, fighting with fire, fi- the fire with fire analogy is just right. not that wise for Purdue. Yeah. But Sanford, I think, is a, I mean, he's definitely a promising young coach um, and a nice guy and a smart guy. Um, Bill, let's jump into games real fast because we're a little bit late. I'm just going to we'll plow through Thursday first. Then we're going to jump in. You've written a uh, you've written a bit this week about Texas A&M and Bama. So we'll go to that. Um I'll just try not to scream about the Big 12 no matter what happens. Um, this Good Thursday, we, we have Good Thursday. Last week, no Good Thursday. This week, bounty. A bounty. Yeah, no, no Thursday whatsoever last week. Yeah, it was pretty terrible. Um, Miami Vatek, I was actually um, going to go to this game until they both lost last week. <laughs> uh, Troy and South Alabama. Uh, and then the, the closer, the secret awesome game of the week. How secret is it? I don't know. I just, yeah. it, I think I'm always known. preaching. I'm all, when I say that, just so you know, I'm always preaching <laughs> at the same dickhead standing in an SEC tailgate, probably at Auburn or Ole Miss. And it's like, oh, that's not real football. That kind of crap. This okay. is BYU at Boise, which is tonight at 9.15 God's time. That's fantastic. That's, that's, you watch that. Don't worry all about what tomorrow. All three of these games. We'll talk about Miami and Virginia Tech, but I will say, Troy, Neil Brown is doing a hell of a draw a job at Troy. 2017 uh, head coaching candidate in a big, big right. way. Like, I got asked, actually, in the Purdue piece, why didn't you incru- include him? Because he really has, I mean, right now in S&P, they are 43rd, ahead of Indiana, ahead of Arkansas, ahead of Temple and Memphis, ahead of Utah. Um they have done remarkable things on both offense. Like, he's done a phenomenal job. The reason I didn't include him is that this is only his second year. Um, and last season, you know, they showed promise last year. I, I actually, this is one of the things I get to kind of pat myself on the back about. I, I, I hinted that they were better than their record and might be good this year. And then I hedged like crazy because that's what I do. But anyway, um, that was the only reason because he is doing a hell of a job in his second year there. And he really could be a major candidate uh, very soon. But anyway, so that's a reason to watch that. And South Alabama only beats it uh, decent, interesting teams. Uh, they are 0-3 in Sunbelt play with wins over San Diego State and Mississippi State. So they will probably win tonight. Um, but Real then, yeah, quick, the other two games are all interesting. Real quick. I don't, it, it's too early to talk about him in, in the framework of, like, a job job. And Western Kentucky is a job job. But what I mean by that is that if – if Brom, Western Kentucky hasn't quite had that poke your head out on the national scene type year, but Brom is so highly respected in a lot of circles that he could still maybe land a job. Neil Brown would fit really well into what Western Kentucky does. Just oh, throwing yeah. that out there. By the way, he's also from Danville, Kentucky. So he has uh, obviously some experience at UK. It would make a lot of sense. Um, all right. Um, 
Saturday, Friday's, though. Friday's cool, too, actually. Wait, what's, um, wait, what's well, Friday? Semi, okay, not, 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 at, not Thursday, but to uh, South Florida Temple. Um, South Florida's good, and Temple is better than it was a month ago. That's very true, and that's a good and way of putting it. they came up with it. a really crazy-ass win over uh, Central Florida last week where I kind of gave up on them twice, and they ended up coming all the way back. Uh, and Oregon Cal, just uh, – it's a Cal game. It's an Oregon game. There will be storylines and four and a half hours of entertainment. So, you know, if, you, if you're interested in staying up till about 2 in the morning, go for it. Taggart is going to be – this, this, this could be an ideal game for him to, to showcase. Not that I think Temple is – on the wane or anything like that, like you just said, they're they're actually figuring themselves out now. Um, but if if Tiger could show out in this game, it's only going to help his stock, and his stock is continuing to, to elevate. Um, Oregon Cal, I'm I, no, I'm no, no, just no. <laughs> I, I I'll, I'll say right now, I will DVR that game and I will skip through it in the morning. I'm not staying up no, even on I'm a not, Friday night. I'm not staying. I got up things day. to do. I got things to do. Um, uh, okay, so do we have a theme this week? I've neglected to really try and find a theme. Do we have to have a theme every week? Is this just <laughs> is this theme regular in that you have the marquee matchups that like the television networks demand, but you have the games that we in the nerdery are going to geek out over, and then you just have a lot of conference play. So like the average fan who has one team interest at heart is going to be happy about this week. Can we can we just call it that? Right. I mean, this is right. – yeah, we'll say this is a politics is local week um, because, yeah, there there really isn't um, – there there are so few truly remarkable games this week that, that Jason actually just had me write two pieces about A.N. and Bama. The next one will come out tomorrow. Well, this, but, is, um, this is the definition of a conference play week in that you're, you're right at the midpoint and – there are enough, like I said, enough brand names and enough rankings for people at the top not to say, "Well, it's a, you know, kind of a thin week this week in college football." And then there's not a lot of like hardcore indie rock games where <laughs> you and I are going to freak out. But then again, if you are a fan of one of the top seventy programs in college football, your team is probably playing a game this week against a conference opponent that you care a lot about. Yes, is that fair to say? Yes. Uh, um, lots of lots of games to care about and be interested in, but no, the marquee games are not so there. The great, exa- great example: Wisconsin at Iowa. Yeah, that, that's the one. I was, yep. You know that 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 would be the definition of the week. This is Wisconsin Iowa week. This is it's a conference game. It's not going to blow anybody's hair back. It's probably not going to draw in interested viewers outside of the two bases, but it matters a lot. I mean, I know it literally matters for standings in the West, but. Um, another good example of that, TCU at West Virginia. Yeah. How real is this West Virginia thing? What the hell's going on there? I have no um, idea, by the way, still. I'm still waiting for you to inform me. Um, they're, based, they're a top 25 team. Um, that probably won't get them. That, they have, like, in terms of, like, the odds and everything, they have, like, three basically toss-up games in the next four weeks. So they're, they're probably yeah. not going to be undefeated for long, but they're good. They're, they're a good team. Uh, Arkansas at Auburn, another great example. Arkansas coming off of a great win against Ole Miss. Auburn, defense is starting to look really, really good under Kevin Steele. That's a sentence I just said out loud. Yep. Um, it, it's just that kind of week. You know, Mississippi – no, I'm just kidding. They're playing Kentucky. I'm just being a uh, – I was just joshing you there to see if you're, you're awake. Uh, Oklahoma, Texas Tech, another great example. Yep. Um, and then we, I tell you, we'll close talking about T- uh, TAMU and uh, or a- do you go with TAMU when you write, or do you go with the ATM? Um, I usually go with ATM or I a- go with a- 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 percent, Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, but before that, Ohio State at Penn State. Um, Franklin's job is uh, my weekly check on James Franklin's job is I'm going to go with if five. Okay. If zero to five is, is on the hotness and five to ten is on the goodness, I'm going to go 6.75 right now. Okay. Close to a seven. Um, I think that you're expected to lose this week. Let's just keep it close. And yeah. historically, he has kept it close in this game. My project, well, and my projections made me nervous as hell because I, I've been doing this thing with variance and volatility where, you know, I simulate each game a billion times and uh, just to kind of check out using like standard deviations just to kind of see if there are some teams that are more likely to cover than others. And so far, it's actually worked out really well. Go to yeah. footballstudyhall.com. Um, but one of the quote unquote locks of the week, one of the surest covers of the week is Penn State. And that immediately makes me nervous as hell. Mm. Um, but my numbers love Penn State or like them quite a bit. Um, and so, but this is an interesting tell because after this game, they might not have another loss on the schedule, or at least they'll be favored potentially in every remaining game after Ohio State. And so really, if they can just kind of look pretty good Saturday, I, I understand that fans will eventually want them to win these games. But if they can just look good and kind of keep maintain their confidence and maintain the form that they've been hinting at these last few games, then they could be on their way to like a nine and three finish or ten and three or nine and four or whatever, something in that range, which is again definitive improvement. Um, I know that's not enough for Penn State fans. I know they want to get back to top ten at some point, but they're not there. They're not going to be there under anybody right now. And, right. and he's this would be the third straight season where they improved at least a little bit, and this would be the biggest amount of improvement that they've shown in one year. Uh, this will probably just serve, kind of hold serve for the rest of the season. Ohio State will have a gutty nine-point win right. and continue on to where people can doubt their dominance as an elite number one team in the nation and how that argument spells out with Michigan and Alabama. Penn State will lose by just enough to show progress, and then I do think they'll be fine down the stretch. This will just, this is just going to kind of hold the line for everything that's going on on that side of the Big Ten. Um, whoa, one more before Alabama. Ole Miss, LSU. Um, gosh, I kind of really like LSU now based off of what I saw on Ole Miss's inability to stop the run against Arkansas. If Fournette's mm-hmm. back and he's at 65%, that's only – super interesting to me because they can spell guys and that would be right. That, I, mean, I was going to say like, they don't need to ride him. They don't need him back so they can ride him 35 times. They no. just need 10 or 15 good carries out of him. Uh, and guys will take it from there. Daryl Williams will take it from there. Like they don't, it was, it's an amazing thing to say that they didn't need that a defense, that an offense as bad as LSU's was a month ago. Didn't really miss Leonard Fournette. Um, but it didn't guys. So, can do criminally, like we should all be embarrassed if this thing if this thing keeps on. Yeah. I mean, I know Fournette was just a god child last year, but I mean, I think Dan Rubenstein said, like, you know, if Fournette's a ninety nine, Geis is still like a ninety five, you know, right. like or ninety six. He's the primary back and a Heisman contender on a lot of other teams. Like a lot. And uh, I think teams like once Fournette wasn't in there, I think when Fournette was in there, that became such a focus of the defensive game plan that I think, you know, Missouri and well, Southern Miss probably just didn't couldn't keep up after a while but like a Missouri didn't really know what to expect but b they were almost kind of expecting some changes where they were you know playing a little hesitant at first and 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 instead of ganging up on the run then they ganged up on the run on the run and it still didn't work but guys was just mean he is a mean running back and really fun to watch and um yeah I would say that between that and just the fact that Ole Miss is so damn volatile 
Um, they're so much fun to watch, but they are just crazy and uh, do stupid things as much as they do awesome things, which is great from a viewing experience, but I don't think it wins them this game. People can call me um, an alumni homer, which is, would be stupid to do, but Ole Miss... I do it all the time. Thank you. Ole Miss and Alabama in Auburn for like 15 years had Death Valley immunity. Hmm. And that's a bold statement to make, but usually when Ole Miss is bad, which they are definitely not, they even their immunity to Death Valley is even stronger. For a long time that came because of because the fact of a guy named Ed Ogeron was recruiting an, an immense amount of Louisiana players to Ole Miss. But I think in recent years, they're the one team... You know, I say this knowing that Bo Wallace completely lost his composure in that 10-7 game a couple years ago, but on the whole, their players don't get shook in Death Valley, even when they're bad, even when LSU is, is considerably more talented in all the important matchups. So uh, that's going to be watchable for so many damn reasons. Oh, yeah. So yeah I, a- assume LSU's, uh, I assume LSU is, is going to win, and the next week people will, instead of laughing about where I have Ole Miss as the highest-ranked 3-3 three and three team, they'll laugh about where I have Ole Miss as the highest-ranked 3-4 three 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 team. team. Yes, exactly. Um, but, um, I mean, I, I can still justify that because their losses have come to – two of their three losses have come to the teams that are number two and number 15 in S&P Plus. And if they lose, it'll be to the number seven team in S&P Plus. So, you know, bite me, haters. Colorado and Stanford, just real fast. That's basically the new hotness versus the old hotness. And that's the team that I, <laughs> the team that I used to just wave in the face of, like, SEC fans to annoy them about football they don't care about. It's now Colorado. So, like, if I'm talking to a bunch of SEC people at a dinner or some other event I'm drugged to at gunpoint by my wife, now I just talk about Colorado. America's team. Texas A&M and Alabama. Uh, You know what? Just let it all burn. Let it all burn, Bill. I want... I don't want a referendum on anything. I just want... I, I want... Nothing but consecutive isolated moments of amazing football. Now, in order for that to happen, I'm going to need some balance out there, right? I'm going to need the inevitable crockpot of death to not completely overwhelm Alabama. Or, excuse me, I'm sorry, the inevitable crockpot of death turned on by Alabama not to completely overwhelm A&M. Am I going to get that in this football game? Um... I say A&M can hang. That ain't good. That's So A&M can do two things that Alabama doesn't necessarily want you to do. Number one, you know, Alabama's this new super aggressive Alabama from the last couple of years. Um, they are willing to give up big plays in the name of crushing you at the line of scrimmage. You, previously, they would just swarm, and it worked too. Uh, but now they go after you. That was kind of their way of adjusting. One of their ways of adjusting uh, to the to the tempo and, and and whatnot of of other teams is now they just go after you even harder, and it works. But they are willing to give up big plays, and A and M makes big plays. A and M's not very efficient, but they will like Trevor Knight probably throws the the forty fifty yard bomb better than he does you know a twenty yard out. Um, 
I guess a lot of people probably do, but you get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Like they, and that and Travion Williams ability to, you know, if he's get, if he gets any sort of breakdown, any sort of loss of discipline from his defense, he'll punish it. He's, he's become very good, very quickly. They can make some big plays. And if they do that, like, that's the whole goal with Alabama is just hang around for a while. Make sure they don't stomp the life out of you in the first quarter. Uh, and then maybe, you know, they have a true freshman quarterback. Maybe he gets nervous in crunch time. We have no idea. Uh, I mean, it's, we've had, we have one sample, one game sample of him in crunch time. Um, but, you know, that's, that's your hope with that, with that. And, and if they can make some big plays along with the three and outs that they'll have, uh, then maybe they're okay. They've got a pretty good return game too, so they can maybe hang in the field position game. But the other thing they've got going for them is just that they force losses in, in against the run. They've become a very stout run defense, which is hilarious thinking where they were two years ago. But um, if you can put a freshman quarterback in second and 11, you'll take your chances. I think that's – Jalen Hurts is really barely a freshman anymore. And any sort of – like he, he wasn't very good on passing downs last week while the game was close, but he's still overall been improving in that regard. So this might not there, – there might not be a weakness anymore. But I do th- still think he's prone to some, some, some read mistakes, some just – pure passing game mistakes and if you can stop the run on first down and make him beat you he might but that's still a much better chance and i think a&m can do that bill we have a lot to do we're already at the hour mark um reader mail perhaps or do you want to go do you want to go uh this week's box score and then we'll do a little reader mail to take us home uh yeah let's go box score first box score box score bingo um this week i got a pull up here i also have your Super duper advanced, um, awesome schematic box score pulled up. All of this will be available at the podcast name Played Nobody entry over at SBNation.com. Yes. Just Google it. Um, or, you know, on Twitter. I share it on Twitter. Um, so I chose Ohio State, Wisconsin. Now, the point of this again over the summer, it was blind box score bingo where Godfrey would present Team A and Team B and we'd talk about how a game probably played out and then we'd find out the winner. In the season, it doesn't make as much sense to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we choose the game and announce it right off and then basically do the same thing, walk through the stats and see what we see. I chose Ohio State, Wisconsin, which is a nice theme since we just talked about Ohio State, Penn State. Uh, who, who wants to read through this? Do you want to read through this, Godfrey? Um, what part do we want to read through? We'll just start at the top. This was a really, this was an interesting game to me in that, um, so Wisconsin had the yardage advantage, 450 to 411. They both had 74 plays. So Wisconsin outgained Ohio State by about 0.5 yards per play. That's typically very good. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a good margin um, for, you know, when you're trying to beat Ohio State. Um, But... They, the, I, I was interested in this game for a couple of reasons, but we'll... Um, Let me do my stupid I, thing first. So yeah. the stupid thing is this. I look at the box score right away. As a lazy sports writer, I see a 30-23 to 23 final with Ohio State, but I see a 16-6 to 6 advantage going into the half. I see that Ohio State scores 17 points in the, in the third and fourth quarter, and then obviously they win the overtime. Um, so I think, oh, it was, it, was a, it was a momentum game. It was a game of halves. Um, let's see what else. What's another stupid thing I do? Let's go to the team stats. So that's going to be the narrative we draw right away if you haven't seen the game. I'm going to look at, I'm probably going to look at the fact that Wisconsin rushed for more yardage and think, well, that's just what Wisconsin does. So maybe holding them to 236 was actually good for Ohio State. Uh, and then in a dumber, ma- dumber fashion, um, I may take notice of the fact that Wisconsin still totally outgained them 450 to 411. Uh, completions look so bad. There's nothing really notable there. 
Then I'm going to go down to third downs, which seems to be buried on this thing. Um, third down, six. To they're both 6 to 15. I probably wouldn't make any note of that. Next thing I'm going to go to do is a lazy sports ride. I'm going to say, well, what happened in the turnover game since this was a close outcome? So I'm going to go back one up. One. So mm, nothing there. <sighs> okay, well, now I'm really stuck. How do I develop a narrative out of this? Um, possession time, about even. Um, then, well, luckily this box score has a breakdown of possession time, but it doesn't really give me anything that shocks me too much. Wisconsin had the, had the ball a lot more in the first half when they were scoring all the points. And Wisconsin likes to run the ball, big, long drive. Um, this is a game, this is a box score that doesn't really tell me anything I could, I could plant a flag on from a lazy perspective. So now... And- and it should. I mean, that makes sense, really, because this was an this it was twenty twenty uh, what twenty three twenty three at end of regulation. You know, it I mean, was I, a, an even game, so it should be even. Honestly, um, out, out of the dumb sports writer character, now I'm trying to figure out like okay. there's. I mean, even and I'm, I don't have your box score open yet. I'm still just looking through theirs. Um, to, no, there's not a lot here. <laughs> really, I mean, there's not a lot here to the naked eye. Yeah. So then, if you flip over to the big advanced, pretty green and red box score that I posted. Ooh, sexy. Um, you start to pick up at least on a couple things here. Number one, uh, Wisconsin did have the per play advantage, but Ohio State was better in success rate. That's the again the you know every play is deemed a yes no success based on down and distance, um, and it's a good like on base percentage type look of how you're. It doesn't look at big plays; it just looks at how successful, how, how uh, consistent were you. Um, first ha- uh, first quarter. Uh, for Ohio State, it was 50% in the first quarter, 31 in the second. 54 in the third, 36 in the fourth. Uh, they weren't really able to maintain any sort of rhythm, and it allowed Ohio State to – or allowed Wisconsin, excuse me, to um, kind of hang around, especially because they got the early the, – uh, they, they despite having the success rate disadvantage in the first quarter, they had a big, long four-play, 95-yard explosive drive that gave them the lead. So they had a 16-6 lead at halftime. Um, Ohio State did control the third quarter, fifty-four percent success rate to thirty-six. Um, but they were, but Wisconsin was still able to generate a little bit more success. Big long drive in the in the big long Wisconsin drive in the fourth quarter that ended up with a full de- fullback touchdown, um, which was an awesome drive, by the way. Lots of really creative. Uh, it's a weird thing to say, but lots of really creative between the tackles running and play calling. Um, really fun to watch when Paul Chris kind of finds the rhythm in that regard. But um, all right, here's one thing. How about this? Okay. Here I am, a sports writer. Here I am, uh, naive, looking at Bill's analytics. I see one thing jumps out to me. Yeah. So of the individual success rates on on rushing, passing, and standard downs, I noticed that the lowest percentage on the entire table is Wisconsin was 38 had a 38 percent success rate on passing down specifically. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Now the national average is 40. But Ohio State at forty five percent on passing. They were a little bit better in, in uh, just a little bit better across the board. So that makes me think. All right, well, let me look at Wisconsin's passing stats. On standard downs, they were ten of eighteen for eighty nine yards, fifty six percent completion percentage. They had one int. On passing downs, they were six of ten for one twenty five. Um, and they that that right there was this an issue of of Ohio State having a more mature, more athletic, better seasoned passing game. That's one thing that my eye looks at. Well, what was really, it was kind of, the passing situation was really interesting in this game because you look at Barrett's numbers, um, they're almost identical. Like, 
Uh, Hornybrook was had just 3.5 yards per pass attempt on standard downs when you're supposed to be able to pass well. Uh, 9.2 yards per pass on, uh, on passing downs when you're supposed to be under duress. Um, Barrett was the same way. 4.1 on standard downs, 10.9 on passing downs. Um, both uh, both quarterbacks just basically they made big plays and big moments to to kind of keep drives alive, and that was something that um, you didn't really well you definitely didn't expect out of Hornybrook. Maybe didn't expect that of JT Barrett either. They basically both teams leaned on the run on on standard downs and just mixed some short passing. But then when they had to stand in the pocket and and on like third and nine, both of them kind of delivered a few times, and that was that made it a, a more intriguing game. But I think it bounced out though. That that was that it, Barrett and, and Hornybrook basically did even, which is probably an advantage for Wisconsin because we didn't expect that. But this was moving forward. I think the thing I'm going to take from this game is that Wisconsin looked like you. You mentioned it looked that they ran up for a bunch of yards, and they it looks like a Wisconsin game. They mm-hmm. didn't. They weren't doing that. Um, their run game. Corey Clement was not healthy. Uh, it just didn't. The running game wasn't really working all that well, and the and the passing game was iffy enough that they put Hornybrook in in the first place. So. Um, I, I think this was a definitely a, a test pass for Wisconsin, and that's the, you know small consolation. I'm pretty Wisconsin sure that was six point two eight yards of carry on uh, on yards per carry, and yep. they were line yards per carry were three point four one. Explain line yards real fast. Line yards is uh, so that's the the equation where you try to kind of divvy out general credit for the offensive line. So basically, the offensive right. line gets a hundred percent of credit for anything between zero and five, fifty percent between five and nine, and one hundred twenty five percent for losses. Uh, because that's most likely the Lions' fault. So, so if they're ending up with six point two eight yards of carry, the national average is five point one six, and Ohio State's four point five eight. How did Wisconsin not have a good day running the ball? No, they did. It's just they hadn't they, they hadn't had a good game before this. They did ah, they weren't gotcha. they weren't looking like Wisconsin until Saturday. So we'll find out moving forward how much of that is new Wisconsin and how much of it is Ohio State kind of being vulnerable to maybe a little bit of a power running game. Um, because Wisconsin hadn't really been able to do this against other teams. So look at this table with these numbers and how even they are, both on the regular box score, which is filled with inaccuracies and and, and, laziness that we laugh at, and your analytics. Either one of them, for me to look at this in a blind situation and then look at that Georgia State game, (laughs) makes no sense. Yeah. Except, except only in the sense that this is college football and that teams progress throughout the season and good teams usually find identities. Not good teams usually find identities late, but it is possible for a good team to underperform consistently in one part of the season and then establish themselves later. Right, and Wisconsin, so I don't that unpredictability. I don't think they had Clement in that game, or at least they didn't have him healthy, if I remember right. Uh, so that uh, you know, you think if they had this Corey Clement, then they wouldn't have been that close to Georgia State. But like I said, that game followed an upset script. Sometimes you know you play ten times, and a couple of them are going to get funky, and it just was that weird. They get the breaks. Wisconsin blows a couple chances, yeah, and 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 then it starts to fill that script that we've seen a lot. Um, we saw a lot of upside from Wisconsin on Saturday, and, and they're going to need it because now they've lost twice. Uh, they're behind Nebraska in conference. They're going to have to get some help. They'll probably get it because Nebraska plays at Nebraska and Ohio. I mean, at Wisconsin and Ohio State. But um, but yeah, it's kind of interesting now. Now Wisconsin has to kind of rally itself for a, an eleven o'clock kickoff at Iowa, who's not bad. Oh, I think they'll rally themselves just fine. An 11 o'clock kickoff against Iowa is something that the people of Wisconsin are steeled for. It's not something that's entirely... I was, I was still pretty good, though. I think it's, it's less of a uh, maybe an insult, necessarily, than it is in other conferences, and I don't really mean that to be backhanded. 
All right, we got time for a couple questions, and we got to get. So we we, we got we got a lot. We got a lot of Purdue questions too. I don't really know. Right, I so mean, we're we kind of already. I'm gonna put a moratorium on Purdue questions just because we we knocked out an entire segment. Um, yeah. So here's one from October 10th. So we're a little rusty here, and that it's 10 days old, and it's also an extremely long one. So I'm gonna do my paraphrasing on the fly. This is one thing I did learn in journalism school was how to paraphrase on the fly. This I didn't learn a lot. I learned how to smoke cigarettes. Um, Michael Garrity asks, Bill and Steven love the show. Um, subject. Okay, so the subject line of this email is not an angry Washington State fan. <laughs> he said, I know you're constantly getting crap from WSU fans on Twitter about your statistics hating Washington State, and for that I apologize. I was a little shocked to see them down at 56 in this week's uh, S&P Plus. Bill, where no, are they right now? Uh, Do you know? Uh, 41 or 42, I think. Okay, cool. By the way, uh, you take out the Eastern Michigan game, they're 25th, so it's their own damn fault, but anyway. Okay, I like that. Salty. Um, all right, uh, then he's sitting there looking. He wants to mention the fact that he lives in Spokane, and so he knows that he's, he's seen Eastern Washington a lot, and he knows that they are actually a very good football team. We would totally agree with you. Yep. Um, okay, so, it, it, again, a little bit more exposition about what's going on from the Paul Wolfare and how bad that was, and then, you know, culture at Washington State, how hard it is to get talent, da 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 I'm curious as to what the two of you think is the realistic image of what WSU can sustain under Mike Leach. I like to think that six to eight wins a year with the occasional nine and 11 season is in play. By the way, I'm just going to pause right here, Bill. This sounds like the guy who wrote us the NC State email. Uh, this seems, I feel like we're serve, we're serving a certain consumer on this program <laughs> and I'm starting to understand who that consumer is. That seems to be uh, what every lower middle class power five team seems to think though. See, he just, he just completed my thought. <laughs> Leach came in with a roster made up of big sky level players that left from, uh, left over from the Wolf era, Paul Wolf, uh, and has definitely improved the quality of recruits during his time here. Do you think he can recreate what he had at Texas Tech? The staff has done a good job consistently bringing in three-star and Juco players from California, and the talent level has risen. I sometimes wonder that because of the proximity to D1 recruits at Texas Tech, that these jobs are far more different from a recruiting standpoint. Uh, short answer, yes. 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 Uh, I, hope was, uh, I hope WSU is able to sustain this level of play throughout the season and bring some excitement and significance back to the Apple Cup. Asterisk, I think I am might be going to that game if, if WSU can maintain. Like if they, what do they play, Stanford this week? Yeah, no, no, Colorado. No, no, yeah. uh, they play uh, Arizona State. Yeah. Like if if we can continue to see this kind of development, yes, I do think there's enough attention for me to get on a plane and miss Thanksgiving. Uh, I don't know if either of you have seen one live, but it's quite a sight. I hope so. Uh, that the 2008 Crapple Cup, and even that was fun. I didn't cut that out of the email because I feel like we should probably devote an entire episode to the Crapple Cup. Um, uh, this rivalry game is just a wonderful microcosm of the drunken hatred both sides ha- of the state have for one another. That statement could be applied to 48 other states. Anyway, uh, thanks for your time and the great podcast. No, thank you. Uh, I apologize for the shit that you get from Wazoo fans. He's talking about Bill because Wazoo fans love my ass. Well, they did. They love me too until last year. I guess uh, it's kind of exciting to be able to be pissed off again. This is this is the conceit of the sport. Right. I guess it's kind of exciting to be able to be pissed off about college football again, though as opposed to the decade of indifference we all felt after Mike Price left. Go Cougs. Um, thank you for that. Thank you uh, for that email, Michael. Sorry, we're ten days late. That's a, pretty good on average. Oh, yeah. um, uh, sh- short answer first: It's a very different recruiting environment than Texas Tech. I think Leach undersold that when he took the job and made a lot of broad scale comparisons. It's not an unwinnable situation, though. It's not. Um, it, it's 
something that you have to adapt towards and try and insulate against, but um, culturally, you have to find the essential pieces in different ways, and as many people want to talk in Texas about how Lubbock is close to Mars and not Dallas, it's a hell of a lot closer to Dallas than than uh, Pullman, Pullman is to, yeah. you know, the first area you might see good line play is like, what, Central California? So... <laughs> Well, I don't it's, know. You can get some nasty Idahoans. Uh, Boise lived off of nasty Idahoans for a long time. So you shout can, out to nasty Idahoans. That's right. You can uh, you can get some nasty dudes from small towns up there. So, um, Bill is Bill. Are they doomed? Just like apparently NC State was doomed <laughs> before we sent them on a stratospheric climb. That's which right. What, uh, by the way, let's just put our gold thumbs out. You ready? One, two, three. Washington State. You have been touched, my son. Go forth, win 10 PAPN bump is in effect, even though my ratings will continue to hate you. Um, Enjoy your Rose Bowl. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, it's a hard job. And, and what we what we see, well, what we're seeing right now at Michigan State, when you don't recruit it like a top 15 or 20 level, you can still win. But the but the but the it's a steeper th- climb, which means it's harder to get up. And then once you've gotten up, it's really easy to accidentally fall a long way and then have to climb again. So... Um, you know, for Leach, we, we know kind of what the situation is for Leach. He wasn't signing top 15 classes at Texas Tech either, but he was able to get pretty fast receivers and pretty fast defensive backs. And he always had a, a, a nice moldable quarterback from some, from, from Texas, basically, uh, that he was able to, to make sure that could come in and, and run his system and learn his system and run it. He's got Luke Falk. He's got Luke Falk for another year. And I mean, you know, Gabe Marks has been Gabe Marks is awesome, uh, just the, from a pure personality standpoint. But from a, a production production standpoint, it's not like on a per target level he's not irreplaceable. Uh, well, I mean, hell, this year he's only averaging six yards per target. He's a he's a, a high catch rate, re, potential high uh, success rate kind of guy. But he's not he's he's far from uh, irreplaceable. They should be able to to continue to crank out. Um, you know decent pass a decent passing game they should continue to uh completely ignore the run more than they should um although yep no i was gonna say i thought they were maybe running the ball a little bit more this year they are not uh they are running it as infrequently as ever they're doing it well when they do it and they don't do it very much but this is a, a leech team now and and he's gotten he made a pretty nice defensive coordinator hire um i i i gotta tap the brakes a little bit i i saw like I've seen a little bit too, a few too many compliments of, of Alex Grinch's defense. It, it's not a top twenty unit. Uh, let's see, defensive S and P plus they're sixty sixth. But if you've got a leech offense, Hayden, do you hear that? Bills Hayden. But if you've got a leech offense and a top seventy defense, you're still going to win a lot of games. So um, you know they have the bendo break thing going on. They are woefully inefficient defensively, but they. Um, can force turnovers, and they, uh, for the most part at least, can prevent big plays. They got a good run defense, even if their pass defense is, is, is uh, like I said, woefully inefficient. So um, this, but I, I, I'm, I'm rambling now, or I'm talking about their current team now. If the issue is sustainability, none of this looks unsustainable at the moment. Uh, at some point, it would be lovely if they had not terrible special teams. That costs them a few points a game. Um, you know, their, their, their place kicking is still terrible. They're two for seven on the year in, in field goals. Uh, they can't punt. Obviously that's an area where if you're an underdog and you want to build something sustainable, like just forfeiting special teams, isn't really a good way to go about it. But, um, the, but besides that, 
they were lucky as hell in 2015. Um, I am, I'm, I got yelled at a bunch, but I'm completely comfortable with where they were in the ratings last year. What sixties, I believe in the ratings last year, they were lucky as hell in 2014, just as they were unlucky as hell in 20, sorry, lucky as hell in 2015, unlucky in 2014, when they went like three and nine with basically the same team. Um, but they, I think, are, have, he has built something that is sustainable at a probably a top 50 to 60 level, and that will get you a bowl most of the time. If that's not enough, you know, I, I would certainly hope that if you get the right quarterback and, and an experienced receiving core and a defense that, you know, is uh, kind of the, whatever the peak of whatever Alex Grinch can deliver and special teams that isn't terrible, um, then you could hit like top 30 and maybe that wins you the Pac-12 North at some point. That should be a, that should be a goal on the table. But if we're just talking about averages, 40 to 60 with six to eight wins is certainly there. Okay. Here's the, here's the dumber answer, which might actually be not that Bill's is wrong, but here's what you want to hear. Okay. <laughs> I think. Not you, Bill. Here's what yes. Washington State wants to hear. You need uh, you need proof of concept on Mike Leach, and you haven't had that yet. Now, okay, great example. Could the special teams be better, and does maybe that swing that one extra game a year? Absolutely. It could be. It could be the difference between 6, 7, 5, 6, 7, 8, which uh, on the whole, when you look at it over an eight-year span, is going to make you feel a hell of a lot better as a fan, especially if those games are swing games against teams that you should be beating and you establish more consistency, and does maybe that help your recruiting reputation on the road? Yes. That's also boring. That's not who you are. You're Washington State under Mike Leach. What you need is proof of concept, and proof of concept is some sort of bizarre win in a circumstance that you don't really have, there's, you have no purpose for being there. You beat a USC, you beat, you know, you beat Oregon, not this year's Oregon, you beat a normal Oregon, or you beat Washington. Now, I don't think you're going to beat Washington this year, because Washington is some sort of like flannel-clad war machine, okay? That will, just to keep the theme going, I will name you, I will name you Mud Honey in, in Omaha. I should name you Temple of the Dog because you're the Huskies. Okay. Sorry, I grew up on Seattle Rock. Um, yeah, no, you were a flannel-clad war machine named Temple of the Dog, and you are probably going to absolutely annihilate Washington State. But the war year, machine did lose at Arizona, uh, almost lose at Arizona. I, so there's hope. There is hope. But I also, I also see that as a team, like we just talked about in the last email, of a team that, that's, that's composing itself and fortifying and building and becoming you know, the Wisconsin yeah. and Georgia State and the Wisconsin against Ohio State. Ohio State. Um, Washington State just needs proof of concept, and then they're going to live with the swings because this, when the highs are high, I think you're a culture and a base with a smart enough understanding of what you have and what you don't to enjoy the highs in a way that most other programs can't, like miserable, perpetually miserable programs in the SEC, which is everyone except Alabama. Everyone's sort of always miserable and always <laughs> anxious, whereas I think Wazoo can savor that before they swing to the other side for a little while um, I mean, short answer is if I put it in front of you this year that you'd lose to Eastern Washington and then maybe upset Washington at the end, you'd take it. I know you would. You, oh, crazy, yeah. you crazy, you crazy timber logging drunks. I love you. I don't care about numbers. Blame it all on Bill. I'm gonna come out there and pull him in for Thanksgiving. We're gonna have a great old time, and I'm gonna die of alcohol poisoning and probably be buried on someone's lot. Okay. You need proof of concept. It just hasn't happened yet. And Leach will give that to you eventually. You need Michael Crabtree shaking a defender to score the touchdown on ABC primetime. That's what you need. And, I mean, they did win, what, nine games last year. So I Yeah, mean, but it was 
it was lucky. I'm the first one to tell you they were lucky, but it was at least proof that uh, they can put themselves in the neighborhood of winning a lot of games. A lot of that and, nine games is like nougat, though. You know, you didn't. You didn't there's no flavor there. Okay. Um, last question because this thing's gone on too long, and I need to escape from parts unknown. Seriously, about. we're at like 90 minutes. I don't mm-hmm. even know if we have enough. Do we have enough time for another question? Last question. I don't know. I don't know if the podcast thing. Like, I don't know if the computer explodes. Whatever. Alan Mathis asks. Alan asked a bad question. <laughs> so I was watching Houston escape with a win over Tulsa, and it occurred to me that despite Houston winning this game, their fans just had one of the worst months a fan base could ever experience, comma, right? Okay, I'm still with you, Alan. About a month ago, Houston was primed for a playoff shot with the hottest young coach in history, and a Big 12 invite was seemingly on the way. Now just a month, le- now, just a month later, they don't control their own destiny to win their conference, or their division, by the way. Uh, they're effectively completely out of the playoff race, maybe, probably. LSU and very likely Texas will try and hire their coach away. And most importantly, it doesn't appear as though they're going to become a Power 5 member due to the Big 12's decision not to expand. This was written three days ago. Alan, you were good right there. The last time a fan base had this bad of a month had to be Penn State in 2011, right? Yeah. Alan. Alan. Damn. No, Alan. No, they had a bad, they had a bad swing, Alan. Jesus, I shouldn't be laughing. I but I mean, like May May of twenty sixteen was probably bad, worse to Baylor than um, <laughs> if we want to go down that road. But anyway, Jesus, it was bad. No, it, I I get the sentiment though because this really was like I said, you're trying to get on the spaceship before it takes off, and. This was Big 12 pretended like it had two tickets onto that spaceship and then went psych and Houston could not have done anything more in the last 12 months to get one of those tickets. And then the Big 12 yeah, just decided. What? So nobody, I get that. Nobody raped a child in a right. shower. Right. I'm going to stop laughing was, now. Like, right. No, that was, Alan, <laughs> You're in the penalty box. I, 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 I get the pity, though. I get like where how you could go down this really negative road. Like, well, we have, um, you know, we, 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 we have this future lined up and now we're going to lose Tom Herman and now blah, blah, blah. I get the pity there, but yeah, no, no, nothing is Penn state. Dear God. Just, I tell you what, Alan, <laughs> I thank you for this because if I have to revisit this question in six months, because Art Bryles is the head coach at Houston, then I'm just, I'm going to go cover hockey or something. Okay. Whew. As always, we thank you for your time. You can follow uh, bill on Twitter at uh, Twitter at the old twitter.com slash SBN underscore Bill C and myself on Twitter and Instagram at 38Godfrey. Um, be sure to subscribe, review um, at the SoundCloud, at the iTunes, at the Stitcher. I've been using this uh, shout out to Richard on the SB Nation staff. I've been using, I gotta pull my phone up. It's called Overcast. It's fantastic. Uh, there was a small fee to have it ad free, but it's so much better than the iTunes app. Even though you need to rate us in the iTunes store, uh, we love iTunes. Uh, please, please, God. Um, I don't even know why we're doing that, but whatever. This is the outro. Bill, you want to come back and do this on a much faster, efficient version (laughs) on Sunday night? Yeah, let's give that a shot. All right.